This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor. But wait, no, I'm not. Leslie's just having voice problems, so I'm doing the intro to this. I'm Dan Feinberg. THR's chief TV critic, and I'm joined, as always, by the great, the fantastic, Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor at THR. How you doing, Leslie? Pork chops and applesauce. Curse the Dodgers for having this impact on my voice, still. And curse Dave Roberts. Yeah, that's all I'm going to say. Excellent. Well, uh, definitely, I I know that you have more to say, but I also want your voice to last uh, at least close to the duration of the podcast, if humanly possible. It already sounds like it's it's flailing, and I assume that we've already wholly confused our audience with a different intro. So, uh, so yeah, let's, let's get down to business with this week's headlines. Number one. It took a minute, but Stars has renewed Katori Hall's critically praised drama P-Valley for a third season of 10 episodes. God bless them, finally. I don't know why it took so long, but... Yes, for more P-Valley. Yep, definitely that was one that took a little bit longer than necessary, and now we can just concentrate on other shows that haven't been renewed, uh, and I would I would mention A League of Their Own, but then you would get really emotional about it and start yelling and start talking, and I don't want to break your voice, but definitely A League of Their Own. Uh, how about a renewal on that one? How about a renewal Seriously, on... Seriously, what's the hold up Amazon and Sony? Get your shit together. I don't know. Ditto with Hulu and This Fool. Uh, there, there are a yeah, number of shows that FX are just... FX and This Fool. Yeah. No, FX has nothing to do with This Fool. I thought This Fool was an FX on Hulu show. No, it's just Hulu. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Okay, who knows? Who knows? Well, this is a good reminder for us to plug episodes 172 from this past June with Katori Hall talking about season two of P-Valley. And you can go back and listen to her back in episode 78 from July of 2020 talking about the series in general. So, yeah, lots of great stuff from Katori Hall. Continuing along with headlines, Book of Boba Fett star, well, at least until it just became season three of The Mandalorian and they forgot entirely about Book of Boba Fett. Uh, Tamura Morrison is reuniting with his Aquaman star co-star um, Jason Momoa and will play the King of Maui in the Apple drama Chief of War. In other casting news, Peacock's semi-autobiographical Pete Davidson comedy Bubkiss has enlisted Charlie Day, Brad Garrett, Keenan Thompson, Simon Rex, and Ray Romano as guest stars. Davidson plays a heightened version of himself opposite Emmy winner Edie Falco and Joe Pesci as his mother and father. What? No, mother and grandfather. 
Does that work mathematically? Anyway, as his mother and grandfather, respectively. And in news from a late Friday news dump, Peacock's Fresh Prince of Bel-Air dramatic update has enlisted its fourth showrunner as production on season two nears. Carla Banks Waddles takes over for duo TJ Brady and Rashid Newson, who in turn took over for Diane Houston, who replaced series creator Chris Collins. All of the changes are over creative differences, to which I say, really? You know what the show is? Make the dramatic version. Chris Collins wanted to do a, a dark version that was like The Wire for a streaming audience. I would watch that. Instead, it's an hour-long version of The Fresh Prince, which that was already done and done extremely well. You don't need to do an hour of the show we've already seen. So, yeah. So we're nearing designated survivor status here. And for those that don't recall one of my favorite subtopics, designated survivor featured a whopping five showrunners over its three seasons, which of course were spread out over two platforms. So five showrunners, three seasons, two platforms, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, or just simply titled Bel-Air, four showrunners, one platform, Landed at Peacock with a two-season straight-to-series order after a bidding war that also saw Netflix and HBO Max bid for the show. Ah, Peacock. <laughs> now, this is a story all about how my showrunners got turned right side out. I don't know. I'm going to stop singing because it sounds terrible. <laughs> I really thought you'd been preparing that for this podcast, and uh, apparently you had not been preparing it. No, I just really used to love that that song back in the day. So it's anyway, you never fair. forget it. It was catch. It was some catchy shit. Anyway, <laughs> up second, number two. We're a couple weeks into the broadcast season, and while it's not as exciting as it used to be, well, it's not exciting at all. Yeah. Actually, that sound you hear right now, crickets. I, but it Do you hear the crickets? I hear the crickets. It is absolutely a thing that has been happening for a month or so. The broadcast season has been going along, and so there are a couple successes, a couple failures, and then a couple pieces of just general news going across the board. So where would you like to start, Leslie? Well, last week we talked about NBC being the first network to hand out an additional episode order for its rookie drama, Quantum Leap. CBS this week followed suit and locked up all of its three freshman series that launched this fall with full season orders to dramas East New York and Fire Country and to comedy So Help Me Todd. So not a real big surprise here. I mean, we've talked about this in the past many, many times that the line between a success and not a success is, well, impossible to tell. You've got, of course, linear ratings, which help provide an, at least a window into how something is doing at first blush. But now that all of these shows are streaming on their internal platforms, they really, all these networks and studios, really get a better window into overall performance and total performance beyond linear and VOD. So no surprise here. It's also really, really expensive to, to make and market new shows. So it's honestly just like status quo. Let's keep going with what, what works rather than having to scramble and figure out how to fill these holes with whatever unscripted stuff we've got. And honestly, probably before these shows even launched, there was there was more than likely a plan in place for how many more episodes they would get how the schedule was going to shake out, et cetera. So it was really just a reaction to see if, if they had any complete and total bombs, which, I mean, those are pretty easy to tell. Um, 
even with without you know linear ratings to, to look at but you can look at what the critics are saying you can look at of course the linear stuff and then how it's streaming on platform and what the social buzz is around it too so anyway i digress so cbs we haven't seen a real a single cancellation yet this season which is not a surprise Plus, what's canceled? They're going to move it, move it to Hulu, and then in May say, "Surprise, surprise, it's not returning." Yeah, we've seen that that story before. So, that's what's going on at CBS. And then we can take a look at some of the other things that are going on elsewhere. But first, Dan, are you watching anything on broadcast anymore beyond making doing reviews of, of the initial brought some of the broadcast stuff that you did? I know Angie did a lot of it. I mean, Angie and I split them up. God bless. Uh, God bless. So- Remember when you used to have to do them all? I, I I definitely do. Uh, and that's when there were a lot. I've heard some semi-positive things about East New York. At some point, I think I might watch an episode or two of that just out of vague curiosity. Um, I have not watched any of it. I haven't watched any of Fire Country. And so the reality is that, you know, what I've watched. It's a feel-good story. Prisoners fighting fires, Dan. Then we appreciate their efforts. Uh, That's sarcasm, by the way. I, whatever it is. Um, but mostly I've watched the number of episodes that I was sent of things before. And so in some cases, that means a lot. Like, I did have to sit through six episodes of Monarch from Fox, and that show is utter crap. Um, and a interesting fact about So Help Me Todd, and I don't know if you know this, it's it's sort of the, uh, it's kind of an Easter egg in the title. Uh Todd, it, it rhymes with God. And so the title is is like a pun. I hear crickets again, Dan. Excellent. I just wanted to make sure you you got that. Um, so yeah, I watched three episodes of that, and that exists. And uh, then Baked Alaska on, <laughs> or Alaska Daily or whatever on ABC. Uh, <laughs> it, which, which again- Baked uh, Alaska? Is, so is everyone stoned? Because in case, if that, if that was the case, I would probably watch that. No, I was just referring to a delicious dessert uh, that often arrives at the table flaming at your at your finer uh, retro restaurants. Um, as, a, as a child, I loved me the idea of some baked Alaska. Uh, but it's actually Alaska Daily or Daily Alaska or whatever it is. Anyway, the Hillary Swank show, which while I don't think the first couple episodes are good, I do think it's one of the few broadcast shows that's at least trying to do something somewhat different. And ABC is very proud of how uh, Baked Alaska is is doing. They keep saying that it's live plus whatever ratings get wildly boosted uh, because <laughs> sorry because sorry, because because yeah. DVR users love Hillary Swank uh, and that's just fine. And so, yeah, it, and, and there hasn't God, I'm trying to think, have there even been any comedies that have premiered yet like a lot of the a lot of the comedies are coming soon so nbc has the george lopez and his daughter comedy coming in a little bit and yeah uh, i don't know i just yeah I just cbs's mid-season is true lies which not a comedy cw of course we don't doesn't do comedy at least not in its current form um let's see fox has animal control which speaking of over at Fox this week, they actually found their leading man, Joel McHale. The community grad will star in the straight-to-series workplace comedy Animal Control, marking his return to broadcast. And speaking of other comedies, you've still got two animated series over at Fox that are awaiting their debuts, and both have now been renewed for second seasons ahead of their launch. So this week, uh, 
the John Hamm comedy Grimsburg was renewed for a second season, and that comes after Fox previously renewed Crapopolis, the upcoming Dan Harmon show. Uh, Dan Harmon, of course, did Community and is really half of the duo behind Rick and Morty. So big animation swings coming to Fox. And of course, as we say every time, animated shows take longer to produce, hence why many of them often get early renewals. So this way they can keep going, probably have it for next fall if they needed it, because yeah, who knows what Fox is going to be doing. And now that you've got an unscripted guy in Rob Wade running the network over Charlie Collier after he uh, left for Roku. So elsewhere at Fox, the network is continuing to look at, at year-round development and has signed a broadcast-only first-look deal with former CSI showrunner Carol Mendelson, who is plotting her return to broadcast, and she has set up a drama based on Thomas Perry's The Bomb Maker at Fox under the deal. So that's what's going on at Fox. And then ABC, obviously, you, you know, you mentioned, you know, Baked Alaska, the Hillary Swank show, which, yes, I am aware that that's not the show's name, but from henceforth shall be known as. We've got no updates, really, about any of their fall stuff. Um, no, They usually hand out ad additional episode orders for rookie shows, or um, they'll do an order like, you know, this show, some of the returning shows get like one or two, you know, as they plot out the full year-round schedule and see which holes they have to fill. But in the interim, the only thing that's really going on there this week at ABC is its pseudo-live Beauty and the Beast special casting came out this week with Martin Short David Allen Greer and Shania Twain cast as Lumiere, Cogsworth, and Mrs. Potts. Her stars as Belle with Josh Groban as the Beast and Rita Moreno as the narrator. So that's what's going on on broadcast. <laughs> Crickets. Crickets. Up Crickets. third. Number three. Up next, we're introducing a new segment called Season in Review. We heard your feedback that sometimes when we talk about shows, be it in reviews or showrunner interviews, we're sometimes somewhat limited by embargoed spoilers. So we've got a few high-profile shows wrapping their seasons in the coming weeks, and there's no better time to start than now. So in this season in review, we are joined by the great THR TV critic, Angie Hahn. Welcome back, Angie, to discuss the recent conclusions of Amazon's Lord of the Rings and Marvel's She-Hulk. So consider this your spoiler warning. Angie, thank you again for joining us, and welcome back to TV's Top 5. Thank you. I'm always so happy to be here talking to you guys. And we're always happy to have you. So let, let's start with She-Hulk. You know, as our listeners know, I am far from fluent in Marvel, but I watched this finale after checking out uh, on the show after the first couple episodes, and I found it to be a whole lot of fun. Uh, what did you guys think? You know what? I gotta, I gotta, I, I gotta hand it to them. They really just went for it. Like that was one thing that I really admired about it. Like I, you know, I am one of the people that they directly addressed with that finale, who's always complained, like, oh, it's another Marvel thing. Like, however it starts, we all know this is gonna end the same way with like a big, you know, CG heavy fight scene, probably somewhere in like a dark warehouse or something. Uh, so I was totally expecting that, just because that's what they do like, you know, 99% of the time. And uh, I mean, the whole show has been very meta and self-aware and they totally, they totally called me on it and they decided to go with this absolutely bonkers thing that I don't think anyone could have predicted it was going to play out in quite that way. And I have to admit, I was 
briefly tricked when it uh, you know exits to the to the Disney Plus menu. Like I totally scrambled to see if I'd sat on my remote or something. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it just sees the finale as a chance to pick that up and really go with it. And yeah, so hats off to them in that regard. I, I like that they did a finale that was well, obviously not critic proof because many of our colleagues wrote reviews of it, and obviously not criticism proof because they're well aware that there are criticisms for the show and for, well, shows of its ilk. But I like that they steered into the messiness of the show as much as they did. I, I All season long, even at the parts where I was loving it the most, and I often thought it was extremely funny, extremely clever, very charming, etc. It, it felt very, very loose, very, very messy, very all over the place. And then the finale simply said, okay, we're going to be as, we're going as loose as we possibly can. We're going to, we're going to crawl out of the menu on the Disney plus thing. We're going to open with the, with the, basically the credits from the seventies, eighties, incredible Hulk TV show, which was absolutely fantastic. I mean, that was, you know, the, the show, the thing that the show did that impressed me most was how many different groups it pandered to at various different points in the season. It was it was like sort of giving everybody something with the possible exception of angry man babies who like to complain about things. And even them, even those people would have loved the uh, the faux Incredible Hulk opening from the last episode. So a little something for everybody, I think. Okay, so we've heard about your overarching thoughts. What about your favorite or least favorite moments of the season? For me, I love that, you know, obviously I've only seen like three or four episodes, but the oh, the credits from the original Hulk show, which I remember watching as a kid, was I was like, what is this? This is so cool. What have I missed? Have I missed something? Did I miss something, guys? You missed about five to six episodes is what you missed, give or take, <laughs> which, which, which also means that you missed Madison. And if you missed Madison, then you missed the best part of the season. I don't know what that means. Care to expand? Madison King. Madison is with two N's. One Y, but it's not where you think. I believe everybody knows who Madison is, except for people who skipped the entire middle of the season, Leslie. <laughs> Am I wrong? Was Madison the best part of the season, or do you have something that you preferred to uh, Madison, Angie? <laughs> I think Madison was definitely up there. I am never not happy to see Benedict Wong, so of course I enjoyed seeing him. Um, and I enjoyed the Daredevil cameo. Like, I didn't have strong feelings about it. I knew he was going to come because they had kind of talked about it, and uh, I didn't have strong feelings about it either way. But I do think the show has been sometimes a little bit bit too heavy on like the cameos and the special guest stars and stuff like that. So I was like, all right, we'll see. And then I and then I thought that he was a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, I mean, but going back to what I just said, like I do think the show a lot of a lot of times over the season seemed like it was doing just so much stuff. I mean, you alluded to how it was how it was really messy and how it always seemed to be trying to do a little bit of something for everyone, and that meant the show like. You know, it, it, I'm not saying it wasn't fun. There were a lot of times where I had a lot of fun with it, but there were also times where it just felt like the show was so meta that it was just having a conversation about itself, like while it was also trying to be itself. And that was a little bit, uh, I don't know, sometimes I wish the show would have calmed down a little so I could actually see what it was instead of having to trying to have a conversation about it while watching it at the same time. And, uh, and a lot of that really was kind of getting out in, a, in front of criticism. So, you know, does the does the fact that they spent several episodes towards the end talking about the lack of a clear, compelling big bad or occasionally the lack of stakes or whatever, does that excuse the fact that the show really and truly didn't have a through line big bad and didn't have stakes? Or or if you just accept that the big bad of the season was the patriarchy, is is that enough? 
And I, I don't necessarily have an answer for that. I, you know, I, I thought they did a lot of smart things, you know, the, that the ultimate horror that she had to experience this season was revenge porn is absolutely a thing that the show wanted to comment on. And I, I totally admire the show's clarity of vision in that respect. Just it's, it's a hard thing to necessarily build around. And there were definitely points throughout the season where I wasn't sure it was building anything. Uh, you, you should definitely go back though, Leslie and watch the middle episodes. Cause some of them are amusing. Uh, the episode at Abominations, uh, a New Age retreat, was a really, really funny episode um, and really, really good for Tim Roth. And then the Madison episode, uh, Patty Guggenheim played a character named Madison whose name was spelled with a Y, but not where you expect. Uh, it was extremely funny, and the show's creator has already talked about how if she'd had any awareness of what a breakout character Madison was going to be, she would have found a way to to get her into the show more. I get the feeling that a hypothetical season two is going to have way more Madison than anyone truly wants. But again, the show is good at pandering to its audience, and I think that's going to mean Madison as cast regular and or at least regular guest star in the second season. That would be my hunch. So here's my the larger problem that I have with Marvel is I can't remember all the details. This is a massive universe, film, TV, all of it. And and for me, what happens when I sit through a two and a half hour or three hour Marvel movie that's like seeped in mythology is I forget almost all of it. Like to me, it's inst it just doesn't stay with me. It's all like instantly disposable. And this is not a criticism of Marvel. It's a criticism of me. So before you send me your, your hate mail, I'm not anti-Marvel. I just get overwhelmed with all those details and don't remember things. So my question for you guys is, is She-Hulk required viewing to, before you see what you've got the new Wakanda Forever movie coming out this weekend? You know, does it connect? How do we know about what it connects to? How imperative is it to watch this before you go into the next phase of the MCU, whether that's the feature or another series? And what do we know about if there's going to be a second season? Like, how connected is this? Is this like Jeff Loeb connected, in which case it's not connected at all? Or is this Kevin Feige connected, in which case it's absolutely 100% part of the MCU in a bigger way? I think the show that, I think season one uh, gives the feeling of being mostly standalone. I mean, this is Marvel, so there's always a chance that, like, I'm going to be like, yeah, you know, none of the details matter. And then, like, you know, four years later, they're going to make a movie where they're like, surprise, this all really mattered. Like, they did that with, I think, the second Thor and Avengers, where they were like, suddenly this movie is very important. And I was like, oh, okay. So, you know. Yeah, here's this know, character maybe... you were just talking about with a Y in their name, like, whose name I already forgot. <laughs> oh, Madison is not like a Marvel, like, superhero character that I think is likely to get her own spinoff or anything, although I'm sure there's a huge contingent of internet people who would love that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's a show that brought in a lot of cameos and had a lot of references to other MCU things, but I think was generally actually pretty good about like you know if you have only the vaguest idea of like who daredevil is or don't really care about the hulk like you'll see those characters but it's not going to be a thing where they're like you surely you remember that in like season two episode seven of daredevil like matt did this thing like they're not going to do that kind of thing um and they do like a little bit of light setup in a very lampshady way with like you know hulk and whatever he's going to be doing down the line but that also seems like the kind of thing where they could easily just you know whatever that ends up being, they could just gloss right over that part, so. Yeah, because there's, like, Hulk has a son? Like, See? Apparently. What? It's essential, but that's all you need to know. I mean, that is that is the only piece of information we've been given, is they introduced Hulk's son, Scar, and now people will have to deal with whether or not that's a cool thing that they decided to do or or not. No, Angie, Angie's right, there's no... So coming in three years or two years, Planet of the Hulks? Uh, 
something to that effect, because given that Hulk continues to be used largely as a secondary character and has yet to be just Hulk simply spin-off. Exactly, a straight-up Hulk spinoff, other, obviously, than that he was basically a co-lead in, in Ragnarok, but no. What's well, um, a Ragnarok? <laughs> Sorry, had to. It's a thing. Don't worry. I, so, no, I think this is honestly... Honestly, I think this is a show that's designed for your level of of Marvel interest. I don't think it's a show that's designed for the people who are well. I think it's who a are show fluent that's, in Marvel. No, I think it's a show that's actually designed for exactly as much fluency as you want to bring to the table. Like, I think that there are a ton of Easter eggs, but if you don't care, you don't need to care. Um, lots of supporting characters who who comic fans I saw every single week. It seemed like comic fans were like, "Oh my god, I can't believe we actually got a show with." these totally marginal uh, third-tier Marvel characters. Yay! And so people were excited about that. Uh, but but in terms of actual continuity, like I think that they had to do a little bit of, of retconning to make this new version of Daredevil who will not be as grim and glowery as, as he was for the most part on the uh, Netflix show. And that was kind of inevitable because Netflix was never going to, I mean, because Disney plus rather was never going to make that version of daredevil again. So this is sort of a, here is the version of daredevil that we will now have, but otherwise, no, I don't think it's a, a thing that you need that you need to worry about for future things. It's just a thing you need to worry about because it's lightly amusing and episodes are relatively short. So put it on in the background and laugh a few times. I think that's what it's most functional as. Yeah, but I do think that that is a thing that Marvel is dealing with right now a lot in general is just how interconnected it's become. And I, I, I feel like even as someone who I, I'm guessing has more slightly more fluency in the Marvel Cinematic Universe than you do, Leslie, like even I sometimes have times where I go into a new movie or new show or sometimes even a trailer where I'm just like, oh, God, now I have to do homework, apparently, and like watch like three seasons of something and like four more movies and like, you know, rewatch nope, four more movies it. to even understand what's happening. So sometimes it can feel like that. But I, but I think She-Hulk does a better job than some of these projects and kind of being its own mostly contained thing. Like Dan said, it's whatever you bring to it. It is happy to meet you on your level. So let's wrap up with our thoughts on, on She-Hulk with, with this one. Where or do you think that She-Hulk will, will break through in terms of awards consideration? I don't think it's that kind of show. I've, I've, you know, our our colleague and friend of the five, Joe Adalian, angrily said that if it doesn't get Emmy nominations, he's going to die. Some, there was an in what else. category? I don't know. I don't know. But it's totally fine. He, people are allowed to think that. But no, I, I don't really see. I mean, to my mind, I don't see any place it would honestly fit in. I And I would not be. I mean, I wouldn't be angry if it got random nominations here or there, but I wouldn't expect like it makeup to. effects, technical stuff, or? not effects. If it gets effects nominations, it would be weird <laughs> is all I will say. What do you say? Or do, do you want to campaign on its behalf for many, many Emmys, Angie? <laughs> Uh, no, I think even of the Marvel shows that have been released this year, this is probably not the one that's more likely to, um, make uh, any impression at the Emmys is my guess, but who knows? Yeah. All right. Well, let's shift now to Lord of the Rings, the return of the ring, the ring bearers, rings of the rings of fire. Right. That's the title, right? I think you nailed it. Yeah. What do you guys, what did you guys think of the season as a whole? Obviously, you know, this is a, you know, been reported as a $1 billion show, including all the global rights and everything else. So a lot of expectations were, were hanging on this. 
the way that they rolled it out, like the, the, the marketing for it was kind of insane. Like, here's a picture of a foot, like, enjoy that. You know, here's a teaser of, you know, a, someone's pinky finger. Like, it was kind of insane to me. So did it live up to all the hype when the season is all said and done? I mean, I wouldn't have spent a billion dollars of my own money on it, uh, but <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be on, that's the pull quote for season two. Right. Obviously. Um, <laughs> but I will say that like all season long, I've been pleasantly surprised at how much I've enjoyed this as a person who has not historically really enjoyed Lord of the Rings at all or cared much about its mythology at all. Like I am someone who literally just learned that, that wizards in Lord of the Rings are a whole different race and it's not a Harry Potter thing where there's just regular people who go to wizard school. Uh, so that is the level of proficiency that I was I was coming into this. But I thought that they uh, did a really surprisingly good job all season of balancing these like very big epic world-changing kind of stakes with these kind of more personal character arcs uh you know better than some other fantasy shows that i think are are uh, currently airing um um, and the, and I, th I thought the finale did a pretty good job of paying off, you know, the, what we've been watching all season. That said, the finale was the episode that felt the most like, like, oh, remember, we are Lord of the Rings prequel. Hey, did you ever want to know, like, how many times, how many times they had to update their plans for the rings before they were like, you know what? One ring. No, two ring. No, three rings. Like, it, and like, hey, did you know that, like, this guy, we're not saying he's Gandalf, but he sure looks and sounds and talks and says things exactly like Gandalf. And it was the one that felt the most like, oh, right. Like I, I had almost not not forgotten, but it was it was easy for me to put that aside for a lot of the season. And, the, and then the finale was like where I was like, oh, right. All this all this Lord of the Rings lore is, is coming back up. Yes, the, the coyness of the finale, and I would say probably the last couple episodes, was occasionally grating. You know, the, the again, is he going to be Gandalf or is he not going to be Gandalf? Um, or all of the people who, in the pre-credit sequence, when it was like, oh, the, the stranger, Starman, whatever you want to call him, he's Sauron. And everyone went, ha, I knew it. And then they're like, ha zigzag uh that didn't work so well for me and similarly when they're like what can we do with this with this um with this metal let's do something round that was for so reasons. goofy i'm sorry <laughs> and, and and then they're like what's round that we can make with the ring let's make a crown out of the ring but do we have enough what's like a crown but slightly smaller than a crown there were a lot of things where they were being really coy that i could have done without the coyness and maybe if you trim the coyness Maybe you could get an episode down to 55 minutes as opposed to 75. What do I know? <laughs> but yes. Uh, but I, on I the other one, hand. I know one thing is true, Dan. You you cannot stand overstuffed episodes that ex that with, with that, that's that extend far beyond the normal runtime. It, I am I am a little bit persnickety about that, and this is definitely a show where definitely nobody told them that they had to meet a running time. Every single episode, I believe, was over an hour, and and you know, unless you, unless it's you like have us, Ryan. Dan. Exactly, exactly. Well, <laughs> guess what? No one tells us we have to cut, and maybe it's for the best, and maybe it, maybe it, they should. I don't and know. And maybe they should. And heaven knows we're excessively coy about entirely too many things. So, TV's yeah. top five: The Return of the Rings. Extended by 74 minutes. You were you were Gandalf all along, Leslie. Sure. Is that a good thing? I don't know. I don't yes, of course it's either. a good thing. What are we talking about? Gandalf You're Ian rules. McKellen. That's, that's exactly. nice. Yeah. Who doesn't want to be I, I believe you shall call me now, sir. Okay. Ian McKellen. 
I'm fine with that. Sure. Okay, great. Yeah, I have no idea what I'm talking about. But so this this finale, so obviously there was some big reveal, right? I saw people talking like even the actor didn't know, you know, our great colleague James Hibbert has been all over Lord of the Rings with a recent cover story, among other pieces for the site. But, you know, he did some interview coverage and even and he spoke with the actor and he said even the actor didn't know that they were playing Sauron, right? Like, when did we find out? I didn't hear about this. Yeah, I mean, like, we're, but you got no, it sounds like no one was really surprised by this reveal. And we do know, obviously, that it's already been renewed. It's uh, the original deal for it before they even shot a frame or had writers for it was for five seasons as well as multiple spinoffs because you don't spend $250 million on global rights to just do one season of television. Um, so what do we know about how the finale really sets up a second season and what are you guys hoping to see from what you liked and what you didn't like of season one? More rings? I wasn't shocked by the, I was, was, was that what you expect to see is rings? More rings. <laughs> Look, I went on Wikipedia to, to Google how, or I went on Wikipedia to search how many rings are there supposed to be? And apparently there's 20 and we've made three of them. So we still got 17 rings to go. So it's a ring verse. Rings. It's the <laughs> ring verse. I'm going to stop now. I really haven't had any sugar or caffeine today for the record either. So It was, well, people liked a couple weeks ago where you were uh, strung out on candy corn. So I, I think <laughs> Loopy Leslie is everybody's uh, new favorite. Uh, I am no, out of candy corn. Like, it's I wasn't travesty. shocked by the Sauron review, reveal for one reason. There were two characters who whose backstory we basically didn't know. That was it. There was the guy who didn't remember anything about his past, and he seemed like the most obvious version. And then there was the guy who everyone made assumptions about his past based on no actual documentation, almost as if people needed to do a little bit more research. And then when it turned out that the assumptions people made about his past were not, in fact, wholly accurate. Oh, <gasps> shocking. Uh, so, yeah, no, I, w I was not particularly blown away with those reveals, but also I didn't need to be. It didn't it didn't matter. I wasn't watching it going, ooh, which of these characters is going to turn out to be a character who I know from a previous installment of this, though I'm sure that some people will. So which which of the Harfoot in season two is going to suddenly reveal that their that their mother's last name was Baggins? <gasps> I, I just don't know. I and I don't need that. I'm, I'm going to need you to keep making that sound, Dan. <laughs> my my gasping sound. Yes. Anyway, what, so okay, so so Angie, you need rings for season two. What else do you need? I don't need rings for season two. They need rings oh, for the, season two because, like I said, we still have seventeen more to make. And I mean, even if we, even if there's going to be five seasons or more, that still means you got to you got to keep making those rings. So definitely oh, the ring cat. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have to. Net, you know how I said I really was not at all Lord of the Rings person, so it did not even occur to me to be wondering which character was going to be Sauron. And then they were like, he's Sauron. I was like, oh, okay, sure. And then I found out later that apparently this is a thing that everyone else who is way more into Lord of the Rings has been thinking about all season. Uh, but I thought I thought the reveal worked for me. I mean, I wasn't like, you know, as Dan said, I wasn't necessarily like, oh my God, I could have, you know, that that is, I'm just absolutely stunned. I could have never seen that coming in a million years because it makes sense. Uh, but that's what I thought worked about it. And I, I liked what it did for Galadriel where, you know, she's had this kind of, you know, very intense, but also somewhat abstract arc about like trying to fight this evil, and then and then it, this this reveal makes that betrayal feel so much more personal and 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 very sad. So, uh, I mean, what I'm hoping for in season two is that they're able to continue um, treating this as its own thing and not just here's the origin story of like this ring or like you know this object or whatever. Like, I don't need it to be do the solo a Star Wars story thing where they're like, I mean. 
God, when Dan just now was like, we're there, we're going to find out one of the Harfoots has like a, has Baggins. The last thing I was like, no, please don't. I don't want that. Um, Because I, I like what I've liked about the show is how much it does, how much it is able to stand as its own thing and not just something that is like pointing to things that happened in Lord of the Rings. And and so like we you know whether or not you want to look to it as as a sign of success because people are already worried about its ratings but something like Andor over on on Disney Plus really does feel like a good example of you know the Rogue One to me fell apart in the points at which they had to connect it to Star Wars to to New Hope whereas Andor for me has been doing fairly well because it's simply like okay this is just gonna be different you're just going to have to deal with it. If you don't like it, that's fine. There'll be more Star Wars that you like later, but this is different. I kind of wish there were more moments where Lord of the Rings, Attack of the Rings uh, could do that. But, you know, I, I like Angie, I didn't have expectations, I didn't have needs, and I was rather consistently impressed with how entertained I generally was by the show. So same rap question here. Do you guys think that this will break through in terms of awards consideration? And if so, in which categories? Technical all over the place, but nowhere else. I think technical, and I mean, for their sake, I hope so, because again, a billion dollars. Yes, yes, special special effects, special effects, music, uh, uh, stunts, sure, all all of that stuff, absolutely. Costumes. Uh, Costumes, for sure, makeup and hair effects, sure, but anything more than that. All right. Well, tune in next week when we're going to do another season in review. This one looking at Gasp, Dan, House of the Dragon. Angie, thank you so much for joining us this week. I was thrilled to be here and talk about these two shows with you guys. Thank you so much. Up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Number four. Our guests this week are Attica and Tembi Locke, the sibling duo behind From Scratch, the Netflix limited series that is based on Tembi's true life story and inspired by her memoir of the same name. The drama stars Zoe Saldana as an American art student studying abroad in Italy and what happens after she falls in love with a local chef. Attica, for her part, is also a best-selling author and a writer-producer whose credits include Empire, when They See Us, and Little Fires Everywhere. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, oh, we're to be here. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. Let's just start with a quick intro for you both. Um, if you could introduce yourselves, just so our listeners can tell you apart, or at least attempt to. <laughs> okay, I'm Attica Locke. Um, I am TV writer, producer, novelist. On this particular show, From Scratch, I'm a co-creator with my sister and the showrunner, executive producer. And I'm Tembi Locke, um, actor, author, From Scratch is based on my memoir. I am the co-creator on the show, and I'm her number two or three or whatever she tells me to do is what I do. (laughs) And executive producer. (laughs) Well, thank you for doing that. We really do appreciate it. So let's get started at the beginning. So how did this all come together? You know, Tembi, when did it cross your mind that this memoir could be ripe for adaptation? Um, Yeah, it didn't cross my mind. Atticus going to have to take this first question because it's all, <laughs> she, she's the person behind it all. 
I was um, I was an early reader of the book before it was published. I was an early fan of the book. I wanted my sister to write this book because I wanted to read this book. I just thought it was fantastic. And sometime in 2018, before I started a job, Little Fires Everywhere, I went to the Hello Sunshine offices to read the script. They had it under the pilot script under lock and key. And so I went there to read the script. And when I was done, Lauren Newsetter and I just sat and had a conversation. We just talked about what else they were looking at doing and what books they were into and what did I think about these books. And there were stories about love. There were stories about a mother-in-law and, and a daughter-in-law and a complicated relationship. And I went, hmm, I may know something about that. I got a book for you. And then I just pitched my sister's entire book, her entire life story on the spot. And Lauren, to her credit, was a little dubious to hear that my sister wrote a book. She was like, okay. Yet she liked the title. And I think she must have seen something in what I was saying that was like, no, this is kind of real. This is kind of good. And so she asked to read it like immediately. And we were what Timby, we were in their offices within like seven to 10 days trying to figure out how to, yeah. how we do this. I mean, and obviously the book market right now in, in terms of adaptations, you know, it's beyond competitive. And Reese Witherspoon's Hello Sunshine, of course, fronted by, by Lauren is a big, big, big buyer of book rights. So within those first seven to 10 days of figuring this out, was there a conversation that this would be a film, that it would be a series that who that you guys would run it? Um, talk to me about what that looked like. I did not think anything about running it. I didn't think film, TV, anything, because I just thought, oh, I'm just going to put them in a room together and then they'll take it from there. I really thought it had nothing to do with me. Uh, I think Timmy was interested in it being a film. Yeah, I mean, I, because I just childhood watching film, like film was just like the first thing that I went to. I was like, oh, maybe, this, okay, I could see where this has the makings of a movie. But it was a very sort of abstract idea. But then when, when with Hello Sunshine, with the manuscripting in their hands, I had to really think in earnest, like what, what actually serves the story? And limited series in 2018 were not as big as they are now. Right. And so the idea of like, oh, we could, that is a form of storytelling. I had to really wrap my mind around it. But I also understood that there was enough story there. And to Laura Neustadter's credit, she was like, it will be a limited series. There is too much story here for it to be a film. And it, 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 quickly, it was very obvious. I was like, oh, yes, of course, of course. Um, so yeah, that's how that's how we we got there. And in terms of, I really felt as though I wanted a seat in the room, in the writer's room. Um, as the person, as the author of the book, but also because I knew that to tell the story well, there were some intimate aspects of the sort of heartbeat of, of the story that only I could offer, <laughs> you know, and I thought, and I, and having been in the business for 20 years as a journeyman actor, you know, reading scripts, I was like, I think I know kind of what I could see the scenes already, right? I could see the things that needed to be there. So I wanted a, a seat at the table and um, the idea to do it together really formed when Attic and I were sitting in that room with Lauren and she was like, no, I, it's it's this, it's what I'm looking at. It's you and you together go, you know, let's go do, do this. And, you know, you guys obviously both uh, have Hollywood backgrounds and, and veterans of the industry, but, um, you know, 
how did your different backgrounds and experiences come into play in the creative process? And had you been collaborating on other stuff all of these years? Or is this the, really the first one? It's the first like official collaboration. I would say that over the years, she has read many of my manuscripts because I also have this life as an author uh, and given feedback. She, uh, it probably is the reason I have a career in TV because I walked away from Hollywood years and years and years ago because a film never got made. And I just thought Hollywood doesn't really care about my voice. I'll go write books. And Timby was the one who said, you know what? I don't actually think Hollywood is done with you. And I don't think you're done with it. And probably within six months, I was working on the show Empire. Like she, you know, we've, we've championed each other this way. And I've sat with her with, with scripts that she has working through beats and, and all this kind of stuff. But this was the first time it was an official collaboration, which asked new and different things of us. I think what we do best is that I, uh, it's not that I can't do character or she can't do structure, but I have a brain that can hold a lot, a lot of plot and a lot of structure. And Tembi's heartbeat is such that she will never let us forget in the writer's room wait a second now, what's going on at this level for all of our characters? What, what What's actually moving them in this episode? What are they up against at the heart level in this episode? And then when we got on set, her ability to craft a note to give to the director, to give to the actor, this kind of game of telephone, it came from a lived experience as an actor that she kind of knew how to say things in just the right way to tweak a performance in ways that really helped our storytelling. I do want to touch on one thing uh, and go back to something that, that you just said, you know, that that you felt like you were done with Hollywood and that Hollywood didn't care about your voice. What happened? What happened? Why I came back or what happened that I said I hate Hollywood? <laughs> What happened that you said you hate Hollywood? I did. So I did the Sundance Labs when I was a fetus, when I was just a little baby. I was 20 something years old and I did the Sundance Labs and I came out of it with a, with a movie deal. And it was a movie deal that was going to star a black actress. It had a multiracial cast. It was about the rural South. It was about Texas. And we were location scouting. We were pretty, pretty deep in the process when it was USA Films. That's how much I'm dating myself. USA Films said, you know what? Actually, we don't think we can raise foreign financing for this film because we don't think anybody in other countries is going to give us money to tell this Black story, which is something that, we, that has been a narrative around Hollywood for many, many years that is, I, I believe, beginning to be finally dislodged. But at the time, I didn't have the power to dislodge it. All I heard was, oh, there's not really a business model for who you are. Because I'm thinking I'm always going to write about Black women. I'm always going to write about multiracial casts and stories because I live in an integrated world. So I, I remember thinking, oh, fuck, I'm in trouble because that's what I want to do. And I'm hearing we don't want it. We don't want what you do. And I just got really scared. And I was very poor. Uh, my husband was about to go to law school. We didn't have any money. And I just thought, well, okay, fine. I know what I'll do. I will be a screenwriter for hire. I will do the jobs. I will write scripts for the movies that you want to make. That's what I'll do. And I'll make a living and it'll be fine. The joke was on me because none of those fucking things got made either. And I did that for well over a decade. And I just woke up one day and I was like, wait, what? 
All I do is write to go to meetings and get my parking validated and get that little bottle of water and talk for 15 minutes in a journal. Like, what is going on? What This is not a life that I want to be living. And I walked away. I told, I was at Endeavor at the time, and I just said, I think I'm done, guys. I think I'm done. And they were like, what? Because I'd always worked. I just had an existential crisis where I felt like I was writing for people who didn't fundamentally love to read. And I don't mean anything pejorative by that. Scripts are a literary experience, but they are about their blueprint, their path to something else. So I just felt really like I didn't know what I was doing or why, and I didn't want to play anymore. And so I walked away. I borrowed money on my house, and I said, I'm going to write a novel because novels are cheap. I don't need a big crew. I don't need to gather sets. I can just tell a story. And it, it is through writing books that I kind of came back to that original voice that I had shut down, the one I thought nobody wanted. Books helped me find that again. And in, in an odd way, by finding that voice again, I found my way back into TV. I found my way back into, I had been a feature writer before. And, you know, all of a sudden, as we all know on this Zoom, all of the really deeply interesting storytelling has, in my opinion, gone to TV. You know, that's where people are doing serious character work. That's where people are ruminating on what it means to be alive. Um, it, it, it's just where grown-up stories went. And so I then tried to get back on that bandwagon and Tim B was right. Hollywood wasn't done with me. I wasn't done with it. And I found my, my way back. And it definitely helped to come back to a show like Empire, which definitely helped further uh, change yes. the industry for yes. the better. Tembi, I want to follow on that. Having watched your sister go through these experiences as a writer in Hollywood and having watched her get disillusioned with the idea that Hollywood was not interested in her stories, how did that influence or impact you as you were beginning to write and to find your own voice and to wonder if there's a place for it? Very much I was informed by uh, having a sister who works at the height of her craft in two mediums, right? So I saw her her write, her life as a book writer and the ways in which she is very um, committed and tenacious in following her voice and her point of view and putting a lens on people and places in the world that we don't always get to see. And she does that because she wants to and because it's what she wants to read. And she's done that to great success, right, also. And and in screenwriting, what I saw her, her, the path there was I saw a career that was both, as she just spoke to so eloquently, for hire, and then also for herself, and then at times a marriage of both. So what I was learning as I was having a journeyman's acting version of Hollywood, which was also like showing up doing what the people tell me to do in the how they tell me to do it in the way and sort of like, where's my voice in that space? When I came to the decision, and it was only at Attica's urging that I decided to write the book in the first place, but that was the place that I thought, well, this is a place that is just for me. What I do right now on this page is my lens on the world. It's my lens on my lived experience. And no one can add to that or take away from that for me. And so there was something very empowering to do that. And I think I only was able to do it because I had someone who had modeled it for me. Right. And it gave me, and I knew that 
I, I didn't expect I would have necessarily a wide readership for my book. That wasn't even the reason to write it. I just knew that I would have more of myself as a person, as a creative being, if I endeavored to follow this heart path and write it all down. And I really can say that confidence to do that, the confidence to just meet myself on the page is because I had witnessed someone do that, right? And of course, Attica, there was my sisters championing me all the way. And 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 I knew that, and, and Attica, you said something earlier I want to go back to, but like the Black woman's point of view, I had never read a book or a memoir that centered a Black woman's point of view that also had an international piece that had an interracial love piece. And I thought, well, that's, I know that. I mean, I know it because I lived it and I want to write about that and I want to write it as openly and as honestly as I possibly can. So that's, you know, where Attica influenced me. Well, along those lines, the show is inspired by your memoir, but the main characters, Amy and Zora in the series, they're, they're obviously an intentionally not Tembi and Attica. What were the conversations about how much or how little you wanted this to be your story versus just a good story? Um, I'll just kick it off by saying the four, from the very beginning, me as the author, as the person who lived it, I knew that in order to adapt it, I needed some psychic distance. <laughs> I could not be in a writer's room and hear Tempe like a pitch X story that didn't actually happen, you know, because we knew we would have to fictionalize things. We, we, I, you know, we, as, as I said, you know, I've been given scripts for 20 years to read as an actor. I know what has to happen dramatically to sort of move the story along. And I knew we would have to make things up. Right. And so I didn't want to be beholden to an on-screen version of myself and their family members. We have my daughter, my 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 parents are in this. So creating some psychic distance was a tool, a professional tool to be able to get in and do the work. And it was also an emotional tool to be able to get in and do the work. And then we could let the best story for screen emerge by being inspired by things that actually did really happen to me that happened to Amy. But we could, you know, bend them a little bit. Um, Attica, do you have an answer for sort of how you approached this as a real story, but also not a real story at the same time? I mean, in everything that you do with storytelling, it's story first, story first, story first. So telling a good story is the number one priority. Um, what you try to do is along with that, let your your big themes, you know, hitch a ride on the back of the horse. Like you want your themes to come along too, but you, you can't lead with themes. You have to lead with story. And so everything for me was how to make the story work. And so changing names and professions just gave us a lot more freedom. I will say this, that Tembi and I both knew that we had like what we've called these non-negotiables that there were going to be parts of the story that were untouchable and letting people know kind of early on, these are untouchable meant we don't have to talk about all that kind of stuff. And there's a lot of other places where we might bend, but you know, things like um, the beautiful meal that Lino makes for Amy and the pilot, that just this gorgeous seduction of her food, um, the proposal in episode two, which is the thing that actually happened. There's a lot about illness that we wanted to tell the truth about and the medical industrial complex, what it feels like to be inside a cyclone of, of having no answers inside a hospital. 
We wanted to tell the story of what it was to be an immigrant, what it what it is to come to America and not have an easy time. So there were these things that we knew were pillars for us. And that that those became guideposts where we could bend and weave the story around those guideposts. At the same time, do you have family members who are convinced that this is entirely based on them and who are really looking forward to seeing themselves on Netflix? <laughs> well, do I answer that honestly? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know what people are. Here's what I do know. I I do know that I think we were fair to everybody. I think when I, I think we were I don't think Amy's perfect. I don't think Zora's perfect. I don't think any characters. I think they all have their nice little arcs. And then I have to simply release it because and I've been I've been asked this question before as an author. I am a believer that memoirists, authors, writers have a right to their point of view on the world. And we're not responsible for other person's feelings about it. Um, do I want to hurt anybody's feelings? Never. Do I think anything in this show is going to hurt anybody's feelings? No. I was with my family at the premiere. They were laughing. They were having a good time about it. But I don't think you can do the work. And certainly you can't do the work with a project like this. Unless you have a singular purpose uh, to be respectful, to tell a good story, and to tell it through the lens with which you believe and understand it to have happened. And, and that is your right as the storyteller. That is, I, I meet so many people who, who feel stymied about telling a true story because they're too busy living the reaction to what they might write in their grandmama's head, in their auntie's head, in their cousin's head. And then you'll never get anything on the page. You have to simply be brave enough. to, And you can do things like show people the, the thing early. You know, let people know, hey, I'm doing this thing. I'm going to tell you, but I'm not asking your permission, but I'm just going to let you know that this is coming. But but I'm a believer that writers have to have the freedom to share their lens on their own personal history. Tempe, you laughed at my question. So do you have an answer also for it? No, well, no. I mean, I what I will say is I, I just. I don't think anyone's going to see the series and think, oh, yeah, that's definitely me. But I think they will recognize the truth, the truth, right, of certain relationships. <laughs> They're going to recognize the truth of, of foibles and the flaws, as well as the parts of them that can be more magnanimous. I mean, that's the thing we try to sort of handle Every character in our series is it's there. It's a yes and. There are two things at once, right? So because we all are, we are, we are, we are flawed and we are genius. <laughs> we're like we're in that that humanity, that spectrum is, I think, in every character. And I know when I wrote the book, um, which is is my true account of the actual people and real life. You know, I checked in with the key members, people whose whose stories are pivotal, and I said, so I'm writing about this. And this is why, and this is what I hope to achieve. So I had those early conversations. And then if I sensed that there was maybe an area that might be sensitive to them, I'd say, hey, I'm thinking of including this. And I would just hear what was said, take it in. And I would still go right to Attica's point. You still go right what you need to write. And then later on, I can decide in editor in the edit, right? What do I actually, what's going to serve the story? Do I need that beat? And there were things that I called that I pulled back that didn't need to be there that were true that happened, but it didn't move the story along. And so it was gone and I didn't have to hurt anyone. <laughs> well, 
Tempe, I, I imagine that the book and the series both have to function therapeutically for you. Mm -hmm. And and book writing is is a primarily solitary job and TV production is primarily a communal job. I'm, I'm curious from an emotional and cathartic perspective how the two processes were different for you. Yeah, uh, exactly. Writing the book was very, very deeply, deeply emotional and I could take my time. So for example, when I had to revisit, relive, um, journey back into the depths of the pain around loss, around my time, my decade as a caregiver, I could do that in small incremental parcels, like little bits for myself. And if it got to be too much, I could say, you know what, I'm calling it for the day. That's it. <laughs> I'm out. Let me go do something loving for myself. Let me call a friend. Let me take a walk. So I could pace myself. In production, you do not have that luxury because it's the, that scene is being filmed today, no matter what. And so what Attic and I did in that case was we sort of looked ahead to what was on the schedule and on the particularly difficult days. And I'm thinking specifically the block of, of episodes and days that we spent in the hospital. We were very judicious about when I would be there and when I wouldn't be there because I had to take care of myself because it is in some cases in the series, there are almost frame by frame recreations of what actually happened. Me, Tembi, didn't need to get emotionally re-triggered, you know, unnecessarily. And then there were times when, quite frankly, I was willing to step into it because it felt, as you said, cathartic and healing to now do it in community with other storytellers, in community with other people who had had similar shared lived experiences. So that very solo experience I had writing, you know, in my home by myself, thinking I'm the only one who's had this experience. By the time I'm on set with folks, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a part of the tapestry of the human experience. And I'm one, one, one person who sort of is waving the wand to say, I experienced that, but there are other people here. And it, I felt less alone and we would cry together. There were so many cry fests and then there'd be dance parties. So we would do both. I mean, that, that was a partial answer to my next question, but like the, for the whole process of working together uh, for you both, I mean, were there ways that you, that you, pushed each other to kind of stretch beyond your your respective comfort zones? I think so, for sure. Um, there were times when in filming, Attic and I might be in a certain moment, we might see the scene, we knew exactly what the scene needed, but there was something that was missing. And I might be, I think it needs this. And Attic would say, well, I don't know. We'd have to go a little bit back and forth and talk about it. But ultimately she would push me to say, no, I think you need to see it actually bigger than maybe what I was remembering in my brain actually happened, right? And there were times when Attica would say, Tembi, I don't exactly get what you're saying, but because you believe in it, let's try it. I would say yes to all of that. I mean, I would say yes to the back and forth, but the, the, the thing about pushing ourselves, I think actually just knowing that she was in the building meant I could try her stuff because I always felt like somebody was there that had my back in a way that's not just a producer. Yes, she is a producer with me, but there's, there's a comfort level where like, I felt like I could try. And if, if, if I failed, 
it would be okay if I needed to go cry because I failed and it was okay. Like I just, there was, there's a way in which I felt like I could be bigger. I could be bolder. I could go ask really for what I need and ask for that extra take, or we got to redo the master. I'm so sorry. Like I felt able to do that because I always had somebody who, even if she wasn't telling me be bigger, the fact that we were even doing this was both of us being bigger in the world. And so, and you- yeah. So it was in that way, I think we constantly lifted each other up and made each other more courageous. I remember specifically a moment, Attica, when I, I had an aha moment because of way something you you pushed something in me. I, I kept whispering, I think, I think it needs this. I think it needs this line. You're like, well, go in there and tell them. Like, go in there and, you know, and 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 do it. And I think a lot of of some of our best moments came out of that sort of each one of us nudging the other to to get in there and make it more better. I'm I'm curious though, Attica, if if it changes, like okay, so if on Empire you do something to Cookie's story, you don't need to worry about sitting down at Thanksgiving dinner with Cookie a few <laughs> weeks later. But but what is the level of responsibility? and pressure you feel when the person whose story you're telling and the person whose story you're a guardian of is, is your sister? Um, I felt a tremendous responsibility, but I, if I may color that word with, it has no weight to it. Yes. I felt it. Yes. I felt responsible for getting things right, for listening to her, for not missing anything, but it was such an act, a labor of love that the responsibility didn't weigh so much. It was on my shoulder every day, but it didn't necessarily bring me down. It was kind of what got me up. And it's kind of what gave me a little bit of a spark and a little bit of a fight to get this right. And I was getting it right, not just for her. I also had been in an eyewitness to my sister's relationship and marriage to my late brother-in-law, who was a dear friend of mine. So there was just a sense. And I also like, I was also trying to get our sense of humor, right? I was trying to get the Sicilian humor that I'd seen when his family came to visit. There are all kinds of ways that I felt responsibility, but there could be, there could be great joy in it. The, the harder times were when, you a director sees it a slightly different way or there are things that a director doesn't know that they don't know yet because no one had been to Sicily yet but Tembi and there's a scene in the finale where the mayor comes into the bar and Tembi and I were cracking up about this scene forever and other people were like do we really need this? I don't like really get it. And then when you watch it on screen, not, not only is it comic relief after, you know, the weeping of, of, of having lost somebody, it's also just funny. And it's also so specifically itself. So there were times, there were times where you're trying to like tussle with people, but I really learned that in the responsibility and in the way that being responsible meant engaging in conflict with a prop master or the director or another producer, it took me months to figure this out, but I did, that the conflict is actually the point. The, 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 I hate to make this gendered, but fuck it, I will. The, the people-pleasing kind of girl in me was like, oh, no, no, we're fighting. Oh, no, no, we don't, we're not getting along. It took me months before I was like, oh, that doesn't fucking matter. This is making it better. This this is great. Oh, 
you don't, you're saying this, I'm saying that somehow in this dialectic, we just made a better scene. And it took a long time for me to own that that was a vital part of the process and to embrace the conflict, especially because on our set, and I will make this gender, it was a set with a lot of women. It was peaceful as hell. It was respectful. Like Timpy said, there were dance parties. Nobody raised their voice. Nobody was storming off anywhere. So in that environment with respect, with joy, with love, you can have conflict and embrace the conflict and know that it's making the whole thing better. I look at the series now and I go, God damn it, Nzinga was right about that. I was not right about that. Or, you know, there are other things where I think, God, thank God I fought because this is this is what it should be. So, you know, it's you see the collaboration that you're talking about, the collaborative collaborative nature of TV. This is when it's really good when you when you can somehow when you can like a maestro control the conflict like a symphony. Then you're really doing something. Tempe, you've mentioned a couple times uh, being a journeyman actor, and I, li- I like that as an expression. But I have to imagine that if there's any position in Hollywood that isn't allowed to rock the boat, it's <laughs> the journeyman actor. Oh, what, God, did, no. <laughs> what did you have to what was the process of unlearning the I have to be a cog in this and not give my opinion versus my opinion is actually what this damn thing is? <laughs> oh my God. Thank you for that question because I was learning it from jump. I learned it in the literally day one in the writer's room. I was like, okay, so where do I sit? Like, am I over here? And I'm like, oh shit, I wrote the book that all, all this is how I was like, okay, I guess I get to sit right next to the showrunner. Okay, great. And I, because, you know, here's the thing one of the greatest gifts of being a journeyman actor is and a nod to all of my journeyman actors actors out there is that we have you have to be incredibly nimble you have to be a very good listener you have to be able to take notes on a dime integrate them and deliver there is no t- so when we get to the writer's room i literally attic i don't think i've ever told you this but we, when i when i realized that notes would come in and you could like take 24 hours two days three days to give notes back i was like what the hell is this business? (laughs) Like when a director tells you to do something on a set, you've got to know how to do it. So I think one of the things that being a journeyman gave me was when we got to production, as Attica was saying earlier, I understood what those actors were up against, that they were showing up on set with their sides. And we, I knew, had changed maybe the purpose of the scene from when they'd auditioned or what we were going to need in the scene was now suddenly different based on the scenes we'd shot before. The journeyman actor does not have that information. Does not have it. So they are showing up and then everybody's running out, what are they doing? Why are they doing that? And I'm like, they're doing it because they didn't get the memo. We gave them no memo, you know? And so closing that, you know, I, I know we have now, um, you know, intimacy coordinators. I think you need communication coordinators on set, quite frankly, between what is happening at Video Village and what is happening at Base Camp. Because there is a chasm that could make production go a lot smoother if you would close that gap. Um, I'm not saying I'm going to be the one that's not my ministry. I don't think I can lead it, but I'm just telling you I've identified the need. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I was learning all the time to speak up, to have my voice, to know that my point of view mattered, that um, I might have an intuition about a a moment, a micro beat in the scene, that there was just a little piece of behavior 
that if you suggested that maybe to the actor, it might change, you know, the the sort of energy of the scene. And I didn't at first feel like, well, that's, that's not my role here. Like I have the one role. The one role is I'm supposed to sit here and just like, you know, wait until called upon. And then I was like, no, that's my role. Like they're never coming back to the scene. If there were ever a time to give that note, it's right now because we're never coming back here. And we might want that in the, in the, in the editing room. And so then I'd be like, tap on a few shoulders and, you know, move it along the process. And, and then if it got integrated, great. And if it didn't, that was okay too. But I had to learn how to speak up. Yeah. I mean, you also posted, I know when I was looking, uh, doing some research for this interview, one of the things that that came up was a post that you wrote, um, time to the friends reunion that aired on HBO max about being an extra on that show or being, you know, a journeyman actor on, on that show at a time when, you know, looking back on it, it was obviously pretty, pretty white for lack of a, a more articulate way of saying that. But I mean, the experience that you just described is basically the, the count, it, it's 100% different, right? It's, it's the, the opposite ends of the spectrum. So it's, you know, in, in my, in a way, I guess my question is how did just being there on friends, affect the way that you wanted to be there oh, for, sure. for from well, first of all that was a very gracious and chill set i mean for them to be at the i'm talking about the actors now at the height of their career i think they had just done that big renegotiation and it was like you know there was like money was dripping off the walls in the room right i mean for me as like a journeyman actor i was like oh my god like i was happy to be getting scale right i was happy yeah, and they're making a million yeah, an episode, which is groundbreaking Central at the time. Perk, right? And I was already in my head, like, thinking of the residuals <laughs> back in the day. I was like, oh, okay, good. I can have my pension now. Like, oh, good. I can have health insurance now. Great. Give me the coffee. I'll do whatever you need me to do, right? Because that's the mentality, right? You're trying to sort of eke enough of these performances together that over a lifetime, they add up to a career. And they're not one-offs. So for me, when I was in that room, I was, one, very aware of how gracious the actors were. And they were incredibly gracious. And I always thought, if I'm ever in a position where I have power and there's that dynamic, you're going, I will always be as gracious as I can with every actor, every everyone on set, right? And well, the other thing I learned about that is the fact that, so here's a little secret. For the journeyman actors out there, I learned that you watch everything watch what the lead actors are doing because when you time for your coverage comes you're going to be much more informed about what's happening in the scene and so many actors don't do that they're just you're so nervous that you're thinking about your part <laughs> you know your part which you have to be responsible for of course but it's it's about that observation and holding both holding both points of view so it's 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 an odd place to be to sort of pop into a set have your six lines, your two scenes. Sometimes you don't even have the benefit of seeing the rest of the episode or even reading the whole script sometimes. So it, um, I tried to just bring a great deal of respect to all of our actors on set when they were up against a lot of things and different languages in Italy because many times we changed the, the translations on the Sicilian actors at the last minute. And they were like, but we need this other word. And I was like, but we actually have to say this word. <laughs> You mentioned Italy, but, you know, how much time did you actually get to spend shooting there and how much access did you get? And was there any place that you wanted to shoot that you that was off limits? Because the show is very much two other things. It's food porn and location. <laughs> yes. Porn. So with prep, we were there for three months, almost four months, something like that. 
That sounds uh, it was it was hot. It was very, very, very hot. Uh, one of the coolest things is when they closed down part of the Ponte Vecchio so we could um, film a scene that was super cool. Um, I don't know if there was any place where we wanted to be that we weren't able to get. We got so many great locations. Yeah, I think the only place in Florence that was just almost impossible to close down was the piazza around the Duomo. Like we, that was just like, we got great, you know, sort of aerial shots. We couldn't shoot there, but the, the locations were an amazing, we had an amazing team in Italy who found us some of the best locations and actually some locations that were the actual places that touched my life. The bar in uh, the pilot that Sloan owns is actually the bar that my late husband owned with his friends. And that was not something I told anyone. It was not a directive that I gave anyone. It's just, they came back to us with sort of the like, Hey, we could shoot here. We could shoot here or we could shoot here. And I was like, then we're going to shoot there. (laughs) If that's on the table and it's in our budget, let's go there. And so there was, you know, the fines uh, were incredible. And then in Sicily, the generosity specifically of Polina, which is the small town that doubles for the real life town, they opened up the whole town to us. I mean, down to like bringing us homemade goods. Yes, you guys, even when we just went to Location Scout, they were like, open up the bakery and just give us food from the bakery, free coffee, just because we were walking around Location Scouting. There was, in in Florence, there was a sense of, well, we get overlooked a little bit. There's always people filming in Rome, filming in Milan, Venice. And and so they were like happy to have us, happy to have us. And then in Sicily, I think they were so pleased to have filming there that didn't touch on the mafia, didn't touch on a ton of, you know, American stereotypes of what Sicily's all about. Um, I haven't seen the new season of White Lotus. I don't, they're in Sicily too. So Sicily's having a moment. But I know when we were there, there was such gratitude that we were filming them as they saw themselves. And there, that was that was a lot of why people were so generous. Tempe, what does it feel like in this that situation that you just mentioned with the bar, where where you just get a list, and then suddenly something so personal is just on that list? Does it feel like Does it feel like it's magic? Does it feel like it's something where maybe you're like, okay, I don't want to actually go back? What is what What's the gut feeling of that? Um, the gut feeling most overwhelming was, holy shit, this is magic. Like, I don't even know how this is happening. Often when I would see the location, I, we were all doing this on Zoom, by the way, right? So we're seeing these locations via Zoom. So they, you know, screen share, the scene would pop, the set would pop up. And I would sometimes just literally turn off my camera, turn off my mic, and I would start to cry. And then I would rejoin the Zoom and I'd be like, okay, so I've listened to everything. And if all things being equal and the price is the same, guys, I have to tell you, that's actually a place that my husband owned, or that is actually a place that we went to. So if we can use that, let's use that. And then it was just like, and I thought, this is, this project is touched. Like the fact that any of this is happening is a miracle. We all know how hard it is to get anything made. And then the fact that we were put on hold because of the pandemic, right? Because at first there wasn't even, we weren't sure that we were even going to be able to film this at all. And then when we were greenlit to go forward, now to be having these locations show up, I just felt as though, you know what? (laughs) If this is an option, 
I'm going to go with the miracles here. I'm going to follow the miracles and see what they add up to. And so, as Leslie mentioned, location porn is a lot of this. Food porn is another major portion of it. Talk a bit about the the technical advisors you had for the food and what you guys learned about what you could and couldn't do with the food in this show. Um, I'm going to start by saying I have nothing to say about any of this because Timby did it all. Like, Timby was the eye for everyone. She was the exacting voice of it has to be this, not that, um, because she had lived and loved a chef. Yeah, I was pretty, um, pretty type A about the food, I have to say. Um, one, because, so a couple of things, but you know what? So was Nzinga. Nzinga's married to a chef. And so Nzinga was also exacting about the food. And what we knew was that she needed it to be beautiful. She needed to be sexy, sensual, inviting. It needed to feel like another character. And what I needed was that it needed to be regionally specific, seasonal, and plated the way an Italian would plate it. <laughs> Who was trying to make love to an American? <laughs> so that, that, that is what I needed. So between the two of us, we got it together. So I would go like research. I would be like, okay, well, I know we're going to be shooting here. It's this time of year. And I would come to Nzinga and I'd say, okay, here are five dishes. Which ones do you like? And then I'd show her pictures of the, the way, because I'd give her the Italian name. She'd be like, well, what is that? And I was like, okay, well, here's the picture. She'd go, oh, I like that. And so that was the, became the sort of process and shorthand. There were a gamillion, gazillion emails back and forth that had headlines like, you know, okay, fuzili with, you know, spinach or fuzili with like, you know, sun-dried tomatoes. It was like a ton of emails back and back, back and forth. We, but that's we, how we, we had a great props department that handled yes. food. Oh, we also yeah. brought in an outside chef. I'm going to tell you what. At the end of the night, there might have been some sad, hungry people knocking on props door, talking about what can we bring home? Can we take home some food? That happened a lot. And talk about the miracles. The uh, chef who we hired on set to be Lino's hand double and to also sort of cook a lot of the foods, his name, you guys, Lino. <laughs> He's literally Chef Lino. When the email came through that said, we found someone to do the dishes and to be Lino's hands, and his name is Chef Lino. I was like, okay, this is funny. Ha ha. Like, what? So there you go. There's a Chef Lino in, 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 in L.A. It's a special show. Definitely. Uh, you know, you're starting to wrap up here a little bit, but, you know, here we are mid-October and we are definitely in an environment where everything is seems to be about vampires or haunted houses or, well, Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, how much are you guys looking at from scratch as counter-programming? I don't know that I'm even that strategic in my thinking. I just think that it's something that the world could use. Um, I remember right before we decided to work with Hello Sunshine, one of my books had been optioned at FX. And right around the time we were going to do this thing, FX, we parted ways. We were like, we just couldn't really figure it out. It was not acrimonious. They gave me my book rights back. We just, we just couldn't figure it out together. Um, and I remember thinking to myself, well, it's possible that the world needs from scratch more than it needs my story about a Texas Ranger with a gun. Maybe more than a story about a man with a gun. Maybe the world actually needs from scratch. And I will hold to my feeling of prescience. This is before a pandemic happened. This is before any of that. But there 
is so much love infused in every aspect of this show, what's on screen, the different types of love, but also the love of the, the family that made it. Um, that I don't think of it so much as counter-programming as I hope that it is a salve for people. I hope that it's just something you turn on and you laugh and you feel good about being alive. You feel hungry, ordering some good food. You have a really good cry. And at the end of it, you feel like, you know what? It is a fucking gift to be alive. And I'm going to do everything I can to enjoy it, to celebrate it, to do something with this one life I got. Yeah. Oh, um, what's next for you guys? Are you going to, you know, has this experience maybe opened up a new door for you both professionally to work together on something else going on? Yeah, forward? I think so. I think we figured out, whoa, why do this alone if you could do it with a partner who makes you laugh, who's got really fucking great ideas, who we can just look at each other and realize we're thinking the same thing and and we have different skill sets that complement each other. I think we I think this was a pleasant for me, a pleasant surprise. Oh, absolutely. Um uh you, you can't quit me. We're doing <laughs> Um, No, we have a great deal of fun together, first and foremost. And I think at this time in our lives and the time and the times in which we are living, I feel that Attica and I together seek to bring stories that shed a light on a place or a point of view, or a people that we haven't seen in a very very specific way. And our goal, I think, we talk about this often, is that we want to tell stories that when people read them or watch them, that on the other side of that experience, they think differently about their lives. And that that, to me, is the work and the joy of all storytelling. I mean, I think it's why, you know, we all gather around the campfire back in the, you know, that that's the whole point is that we're sharing this lived experience and each trying to offer something to each other. So if we can do that together and we can have fun and we can work with these wonderful collaborators like we got to work with on this show, Hello Sunshine and 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 Netflix and, and Three Arts and Zoe and the Italian cast. Yeah, we're here for it. You know, and we do like to end these interviews with the same question. What have you guys been watching and enjoying? Aside from from scratch, of course. Um, the Patient. What even is that show? And they're, they're such a good advertisement for like, not, sorry, Netflix, for like making you wait. Because at the end of every episode, I'm like, damn it. What? I got to wait. So anyway, I'm, and it's something I'm enjoying watching with my husband. So I love The Patient. I love Steve Carell. I find his performance riveting. Um, I've just started Pieces of Her, so I'm into that. I don't know what's what's happening. I'm like two episodes in, so we'll see. Um, and we've been on the road a lot, so I I, I got to up my my watching, my TV watching. Excellent. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us on the podcast. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. From Scratch is now available to stream on Netflix. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, you've got The Peripheral from Westworld creators Lisa Joy and Jonah Nolan, which debuts on Amazon. You just heard our interview with the sibling duo behind From Scratch, which is out now on Netflix. And Sherman's Showcase returns to IFC. 
Elsewhere, the long-delayed fifth season of Inside Amy Schumer arrives on Paramount Plus and not Comedy Central. Apple returns to Acapulco for season two. And the Oprah Winfrey and Onyx Collective produced The Hair Tales arrives on Hulu. And wrapping things up, Netflix enters the cabinet of curiosities from Guillermo del Toro. Dan, what you got for us? I will touch on Cabinet of Curiosities next week uh, because embargo timing and whatnot. And I haven't had the chance to get to Amy Schumer or to Acapulco. I I mostly liked the first season of, of Acapulco. So uh, I'll probably have that one as as kind of background viewing for a couple weeks, maybe. Uh, so, yeah, let's uh, let's start with Sherman's showcase, because that's the one that we didn't have time, either Angie or myself, to do full reviews of um, anywhere because, you know, second season and maybe not a huge hit. It'll definitely be in my newsletter, but it, it really and truly is one of the funnier, the more purely funny shows on television. If you didn't watch the first season um, it's created by uh, Bashir Salunin and uh, Diallo Riddle, and uh, it's kind of a a look through the clips and archives of a variety show that never actually existed. Um, and it is it is truly hilarious at times. It doesn't care too much about actually holding together. So ep- every episode has either a theme or a look back at a particularly notorious episode of Sherman Showcase or a particularly gimmicky episode of Sherman Showcase. But really, it's kind of a selection of clips. So there are musical numbers, dance numbers, uh, commercials, trailers. It's it's, you know, just it's just a it's a lark, really. It is it is a show that is just one punchline after another for 21 minutes. And I would say that probably the new season is a little bit more polished than the first season, especially when it comes to the the musical numbers. I, I think there's definitely, if not more of them, they're perhaps hookier this time around. I don't know that the show is as consistently hilarious as it was in the first season, but uh, they sent out six episodes to critics. I watched all six, and the last two of the episodes I thought were really hilarious. One of them is a a parody of the Black Mirror Bandersnatch episode, which is a kind of ridiculous thing to be doing a parody of in 2022, because I only barely remember that Bandersnatch existed at all. You might recall that it was the choose-your-own-adventure or interactive virtual thing when Netflix was experimenting with such things. And you might have noticed that in the three-plus years subsequent, that has not become the new narrative paradigm at Netflix. That became basically a thing that Netflix did pretty much once. And I think there have been a couple... There was the Bear Grylls reality show that had choose-your-own-picture elements. I think that was the thing that existed. But it, it has not really become a new storytelling format at Netflix. Uh, and so I like the idea of three or four years afterwards deciding to make fun of the fact that it was a thing that existed. And that episode is is really, really, really funny. And then uh, the follow-up episode, which is sort of a parody of The Grind. Uh, Also, very, very funny. The show is full of cameos. John Legend is an executive producer, and he guest stars a couple times. Chance the Rapper pops up periodically. The first episode features Issa Rae playing Iman. Uh, It's 
it's it's a really good show. I I like Sherman's Showcase a ton, and I like the six episodes of the of the new season. It it really is just a show that that very reliably makes me laugh. Uh, so continuing along, the Peripheral is not a show <laughs> that made me laugh. Fortunately, it is not intended to. It is based on the William Gibson novel. It's adapted by uh, Scott Smith, who primarily I still know as a novelist, even though after starting his noveling career with uh, A Simple Plan and the Ruins as a one-two punch, he hasn't written a book since, which has me scratching my head, but everyone's got to have the career they want to have, and if he wanted to use that as a pathway to making complicated sci-fi television shows for Amazon, then by all means. It is also executive produced by Lisa Joy and uh, Jonathan Nolan from Westworld. And the the easiest way that I can describe it, and my review is basically one Westworld comparison after another, is that if someone were to tell you this was season five of Westworld, you would go, huh, it's a little bit strange that they decided to do a season five with none of the show's original cast. But also you would go, yeah, it, it kind of fits. So it's it's a lot of the same futuristic stuff, a lot of the same future tech, a lot of the in the future, we will blur the boundaries between virtual reality and reality. A lot of the virtual reality will blur identity. A lot of the artificial intelligence will blur the lines between man and machine, etc. So a lot of the very, very same themes. However, wherein every season of Westworld, by the time it gets to season to episode three or four, the the philosophical noodling has at a certain point in every season of Westworld gotten on my nerves and distanced me from the show. There's significantly less of that here. Now, there's also, as a result, significantly less thematic richness and uh, significantly less developing burgeoning mythology what have you. So like, it's a show that feels designed for people who liked kind of the surface level fun and sci-fi intrigue of Westworld and who simply got fatigued with the, the pretentiousness. And either that is a positive or a negative. I know we say pretentiousness is a negative, but having artistic and intellectual pretensions should not inherently be a negative thing. Uh, so is even, this going to be a Reddit show like Westworld? No, no, it is really not because it, it just is the, the mythology just is not there. It is not a black box show. It is not a, uh, it is, it is really not a mystery box show rather. Um, it's there, there are mysteries and I, guess if you're deeply invested in trying to figure things out i guess you could probably find things that you wanted to figure out but it's really just not what the show is the show is a lot of plot and the plot involves it it stars chloe grace moretz as a uh a young woman in 2032 appalachia um She's she's battling depression that is largely ignored by the show, but is mentioned a couple times in like the first episode and then they move on. Uh, but she's she's a terrific gamer. But for some reason in this futuristic time, girls gaming is not just I don't know, 
socially marginalized, but it, it, there appear to be active reasons why she can't just come out and say she's a gaming superstar for some reason. It's it's confusing and again not explained. Anyway, she has a brother who's a former marine, uh, and he's a decent gamer, but not as good as her. He gets a new virtual reality headset. But because they're being paid for the performance, they have to have her using it. She goes in, she finds herself in 2010, not 2010, 2100, uh, London. And she's doing what she thinks is kind of a conspiracy game. Uh, but guess what? The game has connections to the real 2100 London. Uh, yay. And, <laughs> and so basically... Do, there's a connection between data transfer and time travel. And so by putting on the headset, she can go to the future. And in the time that she's playing the game, she sees something or learns something that interests it, both a group of scientists who don't want her impacting the past and the present and other people who who maybe do. I mean, it's not as confusing as, as it makes it sound because I'm not giving necessarily the clearest details and and chloe grace moretz is very good and then there are just a lot of really good supporting performances probably the biggest difference between this and westworld other than the whole mythology pretentiousness thing is that it doesn't have the cast of oscar nominees oscar winners tony winners etc that westworld has westworld is consistently this cast of ridiculously overqualified actors. This is a much younger cast, a, a lot of up-and-coming people who who definitely TV fans will recognize. But you have Gary Carr, who people will know from either, either from Downton Abbey or maybe for The Deuce. He was fantastic in The Deuce. He's really good. He plays a, a future named, a, a fixer named Wilf in the future. That would be short for Wilford. Uh, and then you also have Eli Gorey, who was tremendous in, in One Night in Miami. He played uh, young Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay in the Regina King movie. And he's really good here. He's, he's playing a, a triple amputee who has a fun, futuristic motorcycle-type getup. Uh, and in true Avatar style, he, he views this future world that the main character is going into as a potential to become physically and psychologically whole himself. He's great. Lots of supporting people who you will recognize. Uh, Chris Coy, who was in Treme and has popped up in many things over the years. He's there. Uh, Lewis Hertham, who has been on Westworld. It's you know, it's a lot of restraint in not just recasting half the cast of Westworld here. He plays a drunk drug kingpin in the Blue Ridge Mountains in 2032. He's really good. Uh, Katie Leung, who uh, some people liked and other people angrily resented in the Harry Potter movies. Uh, she is really good here. And I'm a fan of anything that lets her have her native Scottish accent. And that's a lot of fun here. Alexandra Billings plays a mysterious, very, very Sherlock Holmesian detective, pops up mid-season. Uh, she's funny and and kind of amusing. It's uh, Tania Miller, who's been in like a dozen TV shows in the past couple of years uh, and is always great, even sometimes when her TV shows aren't very good. Uh, she was very good in Haunting a Blind Manor, I guess, is probably what the most people would recognize her for. She plays a scientist who's part of the group that is trying to stop Chloe Grace Moretz's character or whatever. Again, 
it's easier to follow once it's actually happening. Basically, two timelines, uh, one future London, one future Appalachia, etc. Very, very similar to Westworld. Much less commitment than Westworld. Looks very good. Great effects, etc. Um, and then you just heard our interview with the From Scratch creators. And uh, what, what I'll say here is this is not a show that is directed at me. Um, and it's not a show I need, but I've watched two thirds of the show and I think it's a show that does the things it's trying to do fairly well. I think it, I think it has swells of romance that are fairly effective. I think it has the heartbreak and grief and pathos down fairly decently. And then the things it's trying to do primarily, and you heard this, I guess, in the second half of the interview, is is be location porn and food porn. And I think it does excellently at those things. I, I think, you know, the production in in uh, Italy is just beautiful. Lots of great Florentine stuff. And anytime anyone gets into the kitchen and starts preparing food, 100% you will sit in front of your TV going, okay, I'm hungry. I will now go out for some pasta. And those are kind of the goals. It's it's to make you laugh a little, make you swoon a little, perhaps make you cry. I didn't get to the point where where it made me cry, but I, you know, I got I got some little emotional swells here and there. Zoe Saldana is fine. Uh Keith David is great as the main character's father. Um, Keith David is always great and this is just a fun role for long, him long live enlisted long live enlisted long live all of the things that uh that keith david i'm surprised you didn't just want to go with uh ken burns's baseball which i believe he narrated if memory serves so uh yes uh, uh, danielle deadweiler who was so good in a couple episodes of station 11 and is already attracting oscar buzz for uh for till um, she's very good here. She plays the main character's sister and, and she's so, she's so very obviously an up and coming breakout star. It, it's just good to, it's good to watch her doing things and to watch kind of the expansion of her profile. And, and she's yeah. very good. And remember, she was attached to star in Demi Mon, the JJ Abrams sci-fi original that HBO Max scrapped. Well, that's opportunity opportunity missed on that one for them. Uh, so, oh well, you know, you want to you want to lock down the people who very clearly are going to be stars, and she is very clearly going to be. She's going to be as much of a star as Hollywood lets her be. Uh, you know, that's sort of the the sad and annoying reality of it. Is 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 Hollywood going to give Danielle Deadweiler enough good roles to be as good as she clearly is? I would like to see it. This is this is very much a supporting role that she has here, but it's a supporting role where you're happy to see her every time she pops up. And she could have just been the kind of tangential sister who's aiding and abetting her sister's emotional life journey. Instead, she comes across as an actual human character, which has a lot to do with the actress playing her and and her performance. So so yeah, uh, so so okay. So to recap, Sherman Showcase on IFC returns uh, late next week. It's really good. It was really good last season. If you haven't seen it, catch up on it. It's tremendous. Uh, the Peripheral, 
I found it less annoying than I generally tend to find Westworld. And so that's that's praise because Westworld continues to consistently be a show that does enough to keep me interested in the first half of every season and then pisses me off in the second half. Having seen six episodes of Peripheral, it's definitely aiming lower, but maybe there are advantages to being a less... Uh, <laughs> less aspirational version of of Westworld and simply saying we're going to be a little fun here. <laughs> it's like you can hear the note, right? Like we want Westworld, but make it less confusing and for a broader audience. Don't piss I, people off. I think that's probably to some degree what somebody thought is, is okay. This and is if a, you can make it cheaper, great, because don't forget Westworld <laughs> still hasn't been renewed at HBO yet. I And in terms of actual production values and effects and all of that, I don't necessarily know how much cheaper it's likely that Peripheral is. Obviously, the cast is a much less expensive cast. There is no question about that. I think that's probably where the biggest difference is. Uh, and so in the balance, I'm sure this is a cheaper show. No, I, th I think it has a lot to do with the fact that Scott Smith is is just more of a, he's more of a plot person than uh than Joan and Olin and and Lisa Joy are and and so as a result it's kind of a blending of sense of sensibilities wherein it it's a more digestible thing uh whether it's as quote unquote good or prestige as Westworld sometimes aspires to be it, it probably isn't well, I mean definitely isn't I don't know I it's it is not going to it is not going to generate the same obsession that the people who are still obsessed with Westworld feel, but I feel like the number of people who that is has declined over the years. So, so yeah, those are, those are my shows, uh, for this week and really the best of them is Sherman's showcase. But if you haven't discovered that one yet, here's me telling you to discover it. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to the Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. They do help spread the word of mouth. If you want to just chat with us, let us know what's working, what isn't working, whatever. Come say hi on Twitter. We're always there. I'm at the fine print, F-I-E-N, and Leslie's at Snoodit. You can spell that if you want, Leslie. Snoodit. S-N-O-O-D-I-T. Snoodit. But if you have questions for future mailbag segments, and y'all did really well last time, so the more mailbag questions the better because uh, yeah you, you we got the holidays coming up and i don't i'm not gonna say you know slow news week it's opposite day right i'm not gonna jinx us by saying that but we got the holidays coming up so definitely we'll have some openings hopefully for mailbag exactly if you have questions for mailbag email us at tv's top five at thr.com that's tv's top five the numeral five at thr.com until next week leslie until next week dan 